Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. With the Commonwealth Games only a couple of weeks away, we focus on Glasgow this week with a bit of cricket thrown in. The advance party's arrived in Glasgow for the New Zealand team and is setting up base. We talk to the head of the New Zealand Olympic and Commonwealth Games Committee, Karen Smith. Down and out in the Tour de France, but cyclist Greg Henderson's back on his bike for Glasgow. And staying with bike, we hear how technology will be powering bikes bid for medals in Glasgow. And we talk to Rugby 7 Supremo Gordon Titchens, he seeks to maintain the side's 16-year unbeaten run at the Games. And the Black Caps' top 20 contracts are unveiled. The final athletes were confirmed this week for the New Zealand Commonwealth Games team. And it was officially registered with the Glasgow Organising Committee by new chef to mission Rob Woodell. Over 230 athletes will represent New Zealand, with the men's hockey team the final members of the group selected. Alex Coogan-Reeve spoke to the New Zealand Olympic Committee Secretary-General, Karen Smith, and asked how the Games plans are shaping up for the team. The nice thing about the village and the set-up there is it's very close, for example, to where the opening ceremony is, so it's easy to get about and most of the venues are within a, a close proximity to the city centre. Um, our, our folks have been um, particularly focused on getting the village set up. Um, there's around about 10,000 kilograms of equipment that we've um, freighted across from, from New Zealand, and that's to help set up our social spaces, um, performance areas and medical areas so that we're ready to go when athletes arrive. And um, to make our corner of the village uniquely Kiwi and to give it a real sense of who we are and what we stand for, and so the athletes feel proud and motivated when they arrive. Pretty happy with the way everything looks in terms of... Um, Obviously, with Valley, <laughs> they got over there and it was a bit of a shock. No surprises this time? No surprises. Um, we've been really impressed with um, the Glasgow team and their preparations. Um, a lot of the people are the same people as were involved in the London Olympic Games. And in fact, quite a lot of the hardware and bedding and the like. So as well as the people, you've got the intellectual property and some assets from London. So we've, no, we've found them very efficient to deal with and... The Scots, I mean, they've got um, a lot of very planned, but they've also got a wonderful sense of fun and culture. So we're looking forward to a really, really fantastic Games. And sort of in terms of the sports, what sort of results are you hoping for compared to, say, six goals, six goals in Delhi? Is the target to exceed that? What we know is that if we um, achieve what we did in Delhi on the medal table, we would be comfortable and we'd be happy. More is good, but... Notwithstanding that, in the last few years, it's just been such a rise in strength, um, particularly in the UK, in the home countries, and knowing it's the home games for them, they'll be tough. 
And this time round, um, the best of the best of the Commonwealth will be there across all sports. So there's no defections, the best athletes are turning up, so what we know are the fields will be strong. So if we were able to exceed 36 medals, we would be, um, we'd be pleased. So they're talking a stronger field across across the board, all sports you're expecting from four years ago? Yeah, well I think what generally happened um, in and around Delhi is people who felt slightly unmotivated about attending had a good excuse um, and some, some of the marquee athletes in some sports didn't, didn't um, show up. We have no evidence that that's the case, in fact quite the opposite in relation to Glasgow. And because it's in the Northern Hemisphere summer, it's a really good time in terms of um, the scheduling for most athletes. Is the team significantly bigger this time than it was in Delhi as well? It's certainly bigger. This is the second biggest away Commonwealth Games team um, we've had. The, the, the next biggest was in Melbourne in 2006, but of course that's pretty much a home game. So this is a big contingent. Um, and not only that, it's actually strong, and strong from um, some of the, the sports that are least featured, such as your judos and your squashes and weightlifting and the like. We've got, you know, seen some really talented athletes being nominated and selection, selected in those sports. And do you feel like there's still as much interest in the Commonwealth Games from New Zealand and the public as ever? I, I've been really amazed and we've been thoroughly encouraged by, by the interest um, on many levels really. One is clearly people buying tickets. So there's more than 3,000 New Zealanders that are going to the Games and buying tickets to support you know, friends and family there. Secondly, in terms of um, broadcasting, we will have um, Sky broadcast coverage equal to the Olympic Games, wall to wall. Um, and what we've seen is just a wonderful uptake through traditional and social media on the announcement of the teams and following individuals. And we've been doing a countdown of the 100 special sporting moments for New Zealand, and there's been huge engagement on that from current and past athletes. So everything to us points that this is going to be um, you know, a highly followed um, games and hopefully a successful one. That's NZOC Secretary-General Karen Smith talking to Alex Coogan-Reeves. The New Zealand cyclist Greg Henderson's declared that he'll be ready for the Glasgow Commonwealth Games just a couple of days after crashing out of the Tour de France with a hole in his knee. The 37-year-old's had surgery in Belgium and he's been given the all-clear to return to riding next week. Henderson told Joe Porter that he's made himself available for the Commonwealth Games despite the injury as he's in excellent condition after preparing for the Tour. I got the OK from the team doctor that uh, the knee is actually not structurally damaged and it's just going to be um, 10 days off the bike before I can bend the knee again properly and um, yeah so my fitness won't suffer too badly so yeah I've made myself available for the Commonwealth Games. So did you have surgery on the knee? It was a clean up, they went inside, they, they put me under and um, they went inside, they cleaned everything up because it was pretty dirty inside from crashing on the on the ground and then they um, he said he looked inside, no structural damage, and they did an MRI and everything like that. And uh, he stitched me up and said, take care for three, four days, watch out for infection. And um, he said uh, the main thing is no structural damage and it's just uh, wait till the stitches repair. How do you feel personally? Bloody sore, as you can imagine. I've just had, I've just had surgery. Yeah, give me a couple of days and I'll be, I'll be itching to go again. 
you must have been uh, pretty elated when you had the news from the surgeon that you would be available for the Com Games. Well, it's mixed emotions, isn't it? You know, like I'm so disappointed I crashed out because, you know, if you look at the rest of my body, it was such a simple crash. I got a few little graces and a bruise in my from the crash, but because I landed on my knee and it was susceptible from the last surgery, it, uh, it just split open like a watermelon, you know. It was, it was just a massive, massive cut, and that's, that was the problem, you know. If it, had been, if it had been the other knee, I would have just got up with a graze and carried on and continued in with the sprint. So it's frustrating, but, yeah, it's, it's a good sign. And, and, I mean, to be honest, I couldn't see how there could be any structural damage because it, it wasn't a heavy impact. It was just the fact that the knee was susceptible. I guess in terms of your preparation now then for the Commonwealth Games road race, how has, has this injury changed things at all? Has it given you a little bit less time to get ready or does it, the flip side of not being in the Tour anymore mean you have a, a chance to sort of, I guess, prepare in a different way for the road race? It's a 50-50 situation, isn't it? You know, I could turn up, I could turn up um, really, really tired from the, from the Tour de France or really fresh you know which I am in this situation now and yeah you've got to you've got to look at the positives you know like at the end of the day I'm in peak condition right now you know I'm absolutely at my fittest I could ever be I'm, I was ready for the Tour de France you know and I'm going to have eight nine days off my bike and start riding again. And what are you aiming to achieve at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow you're feeling in such good shape is the sky the limit? Mate there's, there's only one reason I'll go to the Commonwealth Games mate I'll be honest with you know that it's to win the gold medal. Like, there's, there's no question in my mind I'm capable of doing that. And you wouldn't have gone had you not, you know, is that the ultimate goal? Is that what you're saying? You wouldn't even go to a Com Games if you didn't well, think you were in with a shot no, of a gold? No, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying I wouldn't go, but I have the opportunity to do it, but so do the other bike riders in the race, you know, my other teammates. You know, if I can put Jack Bauer in the situation or I can help GC Sargent get in the situation or whoever else is, you know, if I can help do that there to win the gold medal and we're very very capable of doing that how different is a one-off race like the com games as compared to say a tour for me it's not a lot different because for the tour de france i have to turn up ready to go because the sprint stages are usually in the first week so i'm when i turn up to the tour i don't need three or four days racing to get my legs and to find my legs and to turn up whereas a lot of the GC riders sometimes turn up, oh, they haven't done a racing for a month, but, you know, three or four day racing on the flat, they'll be ready to go by the time they're So same with, same with the Commonwealth Games. I'll turn up, I'll turn up fresh and ready to race. So like you say, a, a bit of melancholy, I guess, <laughs> running through you right now. Mixed mixed emotions, mate, you know, like, I mean, I just so desperately wanted to be in the tour, you know, like, I was so ready. I trained so hard from my surgery to a team I got selected and then four days into the race a, a stupid crash and, and I'm out of the tour and then uh, today you know like my best mate and my teammate he wins the stage you know and dedicates the stage to me it's like it's it's pretty hard to it's hard to I'm super happy of course I'm happy but it's super hard to watch you know like I'd love to be part of it and then you know and again I have the great news that you know, my knee's not structurally damaged and within 10 days I'll be riding again. So, you know, I can be fit for the Commonwealth Games. So it's, it's just like a wave of emotions, mate. It's like, it's, it's hard to describe. Would a Com Games medal go some way to alleviating some of the pain of being knocked out of the tour? Oh, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, you'd forget about, you almost forget about the tour if you could win a Commonwealth Games gold. 
your chances of racing and competing in the Tour again next year, have you started thinking about that at all? Yeah, that's the reason I signed a two-year contract is, uh, you know, I'm there, I'm there for the team. I'm there. I'm a very powerful motivator and I'm a powerful engine of the Lotto Bellasol team, you know, for, for Andre Greipel. So, you know, of course, that's that's of course I'll be there next year. That's New Zealand cyclist Greg Henderson talking to Joe Porter. Formula One motor racing technology will help power New Zealand cyclists to the medal podium at the Glasgow Games. Goldmine is a highly secretive, high-tech million-dollar program that aims to give New Zealand athletes an edge on the world stage. It comes under the auspices of the high-performance sport New Zealand, and it's paying dividends. It's headed by neuroscientist Dr Kerry Spackman, who has a background in Formula One with Jaguar, and has also worked with the legendary Sir Jackie Stewart. There's a lot of technology available for, example, national level people or people who are at the international level. But when you talk about the people at the gold level, at the very, very top, you're talking about only one or two people in the world. And to develop technology that will take someone from a bronze to a gold is very specific. So we design all our own uh, electronics here in-house, our own chips, our own circuit boards, um, and yeah, it's a fantastic system, and we work in very closely with the coaches. So, as far as bike is concerned, say for Glasgow, are you able to talk us through what that might mean? Um, so that's an interesting question. So obviously, we have to be a little bit protective here because um, it is secret squirrel stuff, um, and um, you know some of the other teams like Team GB are very keen to look at what we do. Um, so, but I think if we just, just uh, stay with the analogy of um, Formula One. When the bike goes out, the athlete has to adapt to the conditions in the in the velodrome. Uh, has to adapt to the competition, and um, so what we try and do is find an optimal solution for them. Work out how they can change whatever they're doing to get the best result. But like you set up a car differently for you know different aerodynamic conditions. So you're getting real time readouts yep. on what's going on. So if the start for example, yep. for off the line. Yep. Oh, absolutely. So we break down uh, the performance into um, literally millimetre by millimetre, and we have tools that hunt through those millimetre by millimetres to identify key uh, parameters. Obviously, a coach or an athlete or a sports scientist can't look at all that data. We're talking gigabytes of data, so the athlete, the coach themselves can't go through it all and find everything out themselves, so we've built an extensive suite of tools that will look at what goes on, flag out interesting things, produce automated reports on certain aspects of their performance. So you, you take something like um, you know, a team pursuit or a team sprint, that's a very complicated dynamical situation. It's, um, you've got the start, how much do you burn the power at the beginning, how well are they drafting each other, uh, what's your dynamic tuck in behind each bike, what's the efficiency of that, how did their changeover work. I mean, those things are really messy problems and so having tools that can hunt through all that data and come up with what is the top thing the coach or the athlete needs to look at that's really important in a timely fashion we don't have time to sit down and spend you know three hours going through it and say oh what you should have done is this because you know they're up next does this though keep you ahead of the pack or is it simply keeping you level um, well, it's a race. It is a war. It's definitely a war. And, um, you know, some of the teams are actually connected with some of the Formula One teams overseas. They have resources that are far bigger than us. 
Um, we don't have the budget of some of these teams, so we have to be smarter. Um, so if we didn't do this, we would easily get blown out. Um, and you know, it was very interesting in the last uh, World Cup, our sprinters got gold. I think it was by two hundredths of a second. These are the margins that we're talking about. And, and you know, a hundredth of a second is a very, very fine margin. So you're looking at minute differences in performance because these, you know, you can't tell the athletes to train any harder. They're as fully trained as they can be. Any harder, and they'll pop. So, and they can't ask them to be more motivated. You know, so they're topped out on physiology. They're topped out on motivation. They're topped out on effort. So now it gets down to technique. And then we're talking these really fine differences. Uh, so the difference between, say, for example, me and a normal national level, easy to find. You know, it's no, no, no big deal. Um, and so that's why you need specialist equipment, because the sort of equipment that you use for the everyday weekend warrior just doesn't work at this level. Have you made any sort of great leap forward in, in recent times going into Glasgow? Or is there, is there a point where you can sit back and go, oh, six months ago, 12 months ago, we... we um, no, there are lots of what I would call incremental changes. Um, at this level, there's no big thing like we forgot to pedal, you know, um, or, or something like that. So it is lots of little incremental changes, but those incremental changes are fundamental. They do make a difference, and you'll see the performance of some of our teams has taken a big step up, uh, and that's great. Of course, you know, we're in a battle. The other teams are doing the same thing, and so one of them may get an advantage over us and take a step ahead of us. So it's a constant... Uh, you know, battle between the teams. It, it, it's a war. And how much can you transfer that technology between sports? That's been the really interesting thing. I think the, um, the process of measuring uh, in great detail and having analytical tools that uh, prioritise things that are in a format that a coach can understand. That's important. They're not mathematicians, they're not physicists, so we need to provide it in a language that they understand. That's been a really interesting development over the last two or three years, I think, here at High Performance Sport, where there's now a common language of data that all the sports can share in. And I th that's really stopped that whole siloing process where, you know, a rower might look at a cyclist and say, I've got nothing in common with you. And to some extent, that's true. However, the process that they use to improve each other, well, that is actually quite common. And I think that's been a really big gain here at High Performance. It's been a really big gain here. That does a, it's almost opened up the communication between different sports. It's, it's been really great. Is there a holy grail uh, of what you guys on the technology side are looking for? I mean, whether it's even New Zealand or internationally, is there, is there something that... Uh, particularly with bike, there is one thing that we're working very hard on, and unfortunately, I know this is going to sound crazy, but it is something we can't tell you about because it really is a, it's a game-changer, but it will take you know another year or so for us to work through. So the big hope is for Rio Olympics that we will have nailed this particular issue, um, but it's really occupying our mind and attention. Um, but you're right, there are certain things that you go, well, if we could do this, that would be a kind of a bit of a game changer. And I think we're homing on, on another one of those big things. Those, those big things don't come along very often. It's often the little incremental things. You can't even give us a, a clue. No, because if we said, you know, you know it's like, um, you know, and I just keep going back to Formula One. If we suddenly said to you, you know, what we're really focusing on is the front wing. Well, everyone's going to look at the front wing of their car and they go, well, why are they doing that? And what's there? What have we missed? So just even giving you the general area, uh, well, then people will go, well, there's probably something there we haven't thought about. So that's unfortunate. But, you know, <laughs> it is, it's that sort of game. I was talking to the head of Goldmine, Dr. Kerry Spackman.
The New Zealand Rugby Sevens coach Gordon Titchens has had to put sentiment aside in naming his game squad. Stalwarts Tomasi Tharmer and Lottie Rackham Buller have missed out on the 12-strong squad for Glasgow. The team includes, though, three players who won gold in Delhi four years ago, Captain DJ Forbes, Sherwin Stiles and Tim Mickelson. We've come off a, a pretty good World Series year in a World Cup and um, probably one of our best ever years, winning five out of the nine tournaments and, and getting to two other finals as well. And, and um, the, the athletes changing all the time and I've got noticed you've got a very big side, very tall side, very athletic side and they're explosive as rugby players as well and I think the game's changed a lot and that was also difficult not to name players like Tomasi Farmer and Lotte Rakambula who have been real stewards of, of the Sevens team over the years and, uh, but again, um, certainly they could be part of the team if we have injuries leading up into uh, leaving next weekend and they will also more than likely be going over to Amsterdam because we're taking 14 players to Amsterdam so I need cover for any injuries whatsoever leading into um, going into the village. Uh, Gordon, the uh, general public are probably a little concerned that there are perhaps potentially no super rugby players in the squad unlike previous campaigns. I mean, to be good at this game, you've got to be playing it and training it, and I simply always believe that, unless I've been given some players from super rugby that had enough time to, to really make the transition. And there's only a couple of players, to be fair, and, and perhaps like someone like Liam Messam, and a Corey Jay and those that have been there and done that you know, a couple of times uh, that actually understand the requirements. But um, it's been such a close competition just recently and uh, any coach was sort of a bit reluctant, to, all coaches reluctant to, to release any of the players and, and certainly I certainly don't, uh, don't blame them for that. But um, I'm rewarding also the players that have done particularly well over a World Series year and I think that's great when you can do that. To be good at this game, as I said, you've got to be playing it and training it and uh, I see South Africa have named some Super Rugby players. Uh, Habana, I know, is one, one of those players, and uh, I saw Australia do it back in 2000 and, um, 2006, where they had Takuri and, and Gitto, and they had a number of them, four Wallabies, and because they hadn't made that transition in the short space of time, and we had sevens conditioned rugby players, it was certainly made all the difference when we played Australia in the semi-finals. How tough are those conversations that you had with um, Lottie and Tomasi? They're always tough. I mean... Um, Again, even harder in Tomasi's case because um, Tomasi's sick, he's still back in Manawatu. But in saying that, he could be a valuable part. You know, I mean, the game's changed so much now. And, uh, I mean, Tomasi's had a, a pretty, uh, I suppose, uh, a tough year. Hasn't gone to many tournaments at all, probably two tournaments. He's been injured in a lot of them. I called him over to London to replace Joe Webber. And, of course, Lottie is, um, also just hasn't really had the opportunities to, to really get out and, and claim his place back. And... It's probably with the performance of the team and the way they've been going that's probably uh, worked against them. How much harder is it getting incrementally to pick game, Commonwealth Games squads? I mean, when you go back through the four-year cycle, it's a wonderful talent available to you in 2010, but obviously the game's advanced. Yeah, I mean, there was one player, like, for instance, in Delhi that, that came out of the 15s game and had missed the All Blacks, was Ben Smith, and he just adjusted and picked the game up so, so well. I mean, uh, just a superb rugby player, and we're all seeing that now. So you didn't answer? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd never go out, certainly if they're in the all-black frame, you won't get any one of those guys. So, I mean, I certainly would have asked, don't worry about that. But, um, but no, it's, um, it's a specialist game, and that's why we've got specialists now. There's six or seven of them now that are full-time sevens players, and that's what it's going to become. You guys are undefeated in sevens competitions at the Commonwealth Games. What, what does that mean, that record mean to you? 
Well, it, you know, it certainly means a lot, but I, I also understand that it may happen one day that we'll go to a Com Games and it mightn't work for us, but I can assure you that, um, and Delhi as an example, losing to Australia, I think, by six or seven points with a couple of minutes to go. I mean, uh, and what got the best out of them was the fact they didn't want to be in that first losing team at our Commonwealth Games. And uh, so they've got something to drive for and to aspire to. And we know it's going to be tough. We've probably got one of the toughest pools, or if not the toughest pool, with Canada and Scotland. In their own country, it'll be particularly tough. And they're using internationals from the Scottish international side as well. So it's not going to be easy, but um, certainly a great challenge for us. Being two months since you played, it's a one-off tournament as opposed to two or three in a row. And you're training in the winter time. Is it, is it, does it make it harder to to get up for this tournament? If you've seen how hard we've been training, I mean, in Auckland we had a couple of days just just uh, last week and, uh, I mean, we just smashed ourselves. They've done a lot of hard work. I mean, the intensity that the players have been working at has been quite incredible and really even to an extent of impressing my strength conditioning trainer. He's never seen the guys work so hard. So fitness is not an issue. Conditioning is not an issue. It's, uh, it's No, we'll have, a, we'll have a, certainly some games in the Netherlands and Amsterdam. Uh, there, working our week into the to the tournament and going there as well, and and also this week, I'll have a shadow side that'll come and play my boys. So um, now we'll have a, the combinations are there. We've played in the World Series. We've got two new players effectively, and Peter Ackie and Declan O'Donnell, and they both understand the game very well. That's the New Zealand Rugby Sevens coach Gordon Titchens. There are six newcomers on New Zealand Cricket's list of contracted players, which was released this week. Spinners Mark Craig and Ish Soddy, young pace bowlers Matt Henry and Adam Milne, all-rounder Jimmy Neesham and wicketkeeper Luke Ronke all make their appearance on the list of 20 contracted players for the first time. Missing from last year's list are Doug Bracewell, Dean Brownlee, Grant Elliott, Peter Fulton, Bruce Martin and Hamish Rutherford. A set criteria is used to rank players across all three formats of the game, with Test cricket receiving twice the weighting of one-day internationals and 2020 games. Hamish Rutherford is probably the most unlucky of those to miss out, with New Zealand Cricket's General Manager of National Selection, Bruce Edgar, conceding there wasn't enough certainty to offer Black Caps contracts to two opening Test batsmen, with Tom Latham, the only opener confirmed in the 20. We're not convinced of uh, an opener outside of Tom Latham at the moment, so the position is very contestable, so we've left it open, and uh, we really want to see how the guys go on the A-Tour and domestically as well. So this hasn't necessarily discounted Fulton or Rutherford from that test over spot? No, none of them are discounted. It's just a matter of guys performing. Anyone outside the contract list, they're still eligible at some point and we just really want to see who's going to bubble up and do the job for us. What do you say to those guys? Is it, knowing that they have this opportunity, it's, it's there for the taking, for somebody to, to stamp their mark and be the test opener? Look, I'm being approached by all the uh, other openers at the moment saying, look, I'm available, but uh, it's up to them to perform well. And, and, and the, uh, the current uh, openers who have just missed their spots, over to them, and uh, we really want to see how they go through the season. Is it concerning, though, that, this, that there is nobody at the moment really putting their hand up for it? It's a difficult position. It's one of the hardest spots to, to bat in. And um, as we know with, uh, with opening, we're seeing a bit of inconsistency there. We just want to get someone who can come in and do the job back consistently at test level. Would you put any thought into maybe um, bumping up a bowler or an all-round to the opening spot so that you've got a bit more flexibility in your selections? I think at test level, uh, probably no. Uh, I think in uh, one-day cricket there's a possibility. We experimented with Jimmy Neesham over in the West Indies and that's really just looking forward to uh, the World Cup. Um, trying people out and getting more information about players. 
But as far as test cricket goes, you, you really need a specialist. So we can't presume that uh, Guptill and Latham will be the one-day 2020 openers? Uh, no, not at this stage. All those positions are contestable. There's a lot of cricket as we go down to the wire in terms of um, UAE uh, playing South Africa. We've got 17 one-dayers coming up before the World Cup. And so there's a lot of cricket, a lot of information, and form will come and go. It seemed to be there's a little bit of a changing of the guard. Uh, you've got rid of, sort of some of the older blokes, Elliot, Brownlee, and brought in some younger guys. Was that quite intentional? No, look, I think it's just the way it's panned out. It's uh, people with opportunities, and uh, both Brownlee and Elliot haven't really had an opportunity in the last 12 months. So we're looking out 12 months. Uh, both of those players are going on the A Tour, so they also have an opportunity to perform there too, to make a statement to us as selectors. Bruce, when you look through the, the, the 20 contracted players, there are a lot of players there who have played a lot of cricket for New Zealand over the past sort of eight or nine months, and it seems like you've got more depth now, the all-rounders, the spinners, uh, the seamers. Um, how, do you, how do you see the, the depth in the side at the moment? Well, I think, you know, it's, as I say, you know, you, you're limited to 20 players, and there's a, a lot of guys on the fringes who are pushing pretty hard as well. I think one of the things that we're seeing, if you look at someone like Jimmy Neesham, who's bubbled up and um, he's played at an international level and we're really trying to bridge the gap between domestic cricket and international cricket. And it's really pleasing when you see guys like Jimmy, um, Tom Latham bubble up to the international stage without sort of, you know, fretting and all the fear that goes with it. Does Doug Grace will have to work more on his off-field things rather than on-field to get back in the frame? Doug's working really hard at the moment. Um, you know, he got the message a couple of months ago and working extremely hard and we're pleased with where he's at at the moment. So he's, he's doing everything right as far as we're concerned at the moment. On a slightly different note, although he's never in contract, Daniel Vittori, um, is he in the frame? What, what's his status as far as um, the summer goes, the games against South Africa, Pakistan, the World Cup? Is he in, still in the frame for selection? Yes, uh, yes Dan is actually. Dan opted out of uh, well, being considered for a contract and so it's really freed up a spot for us. But Dan's made it clear to us that he is available. Obviously, subject to form and fitness. Okay, but would that mean that he you, he would have to be picked um, for South Africa for Pakistan? He'd have to show a bit of international before, form before, uh, well, before yes, he he's, he, he's, he's been working extremely hard. He was at the uh, IPL, uh, bowling lots of overs as the coach. Um, he's at the uh, Caribbean League now. Uh, he's working pretty hard. I hear he's pretty fit, and you know, from a fitness perspective, he's doing okay. It's just a matter of form. And we would look seriously at him if we know he's available. Okay, and one other question about Jesse Ryder. I mean, um, his talent is uh, not on not in dispute. But how does he um, how does he prove himself to the selectors? Uh, look, um, going back a couple of months in terms of selection, Jesse uh, was considered, and uh, at the time we decided that uh, his preparation wasn't up to the standards that we required, and and to the state it's still the same. Um, it doesn't discount him from selection at some future point. Has he spoken to you recently, or what are his aims as far as international cricket is concerned? No, I haven't spoken to Jesse personally, but he's playing in Essex County Cricket at the moment, and he's playing in the Big Bash League in Australia. So, you know, there'll be some form that will come through from that, and then it's just a matter of monitoring his progress. He'd be a pretty handy option for the World Cup, though, wouldn't he, if he came right? Oh, well, as you mentioned, the talent, but it's actually the package that we're after. Does the same go for Doug Brace? When you said he's working hard, is that on or off the field, <laughs> going back to that? Yeah, look, um, uh, you know, the players, it's not just about talent and skill, it's about what they bring to the team as well. So, so it's the all-round package that we're getting, and uh, as you can see, the culture of the team is, is probably different to what it was um, 18 months, two years ago. And so the guys are heading in the same direction. If anyone's sort of pulling from the side and not heading in the same direction as the group, 
you know, it raises questions and, and, and certainly it's a disadvantage for those players. Does that mean you're not willing to take a risk necessarily on either of those two? Oh, no, no, no. We just have to be convinced in our minds that uh, obviously their talent's right, their skill, it's just the overall package, what else is going on in terms of their preparation. That's New Zealand Cricket's National Selection Manager Bruce Edgar. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you wish to contact us, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz. On behalf of the Extra Time team, I'm Stephen Houston. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.